0: Content warning, this series will discuss topics that may bring up painful experiences for you. Please take the time to surround yourself with good medicines. If need be, pause the playback and go for a walk, stretch, have a glass of water, and come back to the show when you feel comfortable. Welcome to the Métis Speaker Series. I'm your host, Darian Kovacs. On this podcast series, we will be exploring learning, healing, and rebuilding Within the Métis community. Our goal is to create awareness of and generate discussion about Métis issues, as well as how to heal from and move forward in a healthy way. We hope to reduce Métis invisibility in BC through the personal stories from our Métis community members. This show is brought to you by Métis Nation BC and Jelly Marketing. Thank you for coming to the Métis Speaker Series, Kim.
1: Marcy to you as well for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's such a pleasure. For those who have yet to meet you or experience some of your creations, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us about who you are and where you come from.
1: Okay. Tansi Kiowa, Kim Gullion Stewart, Dish Nikason. My name is Kim Gullion Stewart. Gullion is my maiden name. And I was born in Athabasca, Alberta. And I was the fourth generation person to be born in Athabasca. My double great-grandfather went there with the Hudson's Bay Company, actually. He was a boat builder. He built York boats for the fur trade. He came over from the Orkneys and married a Métis, beautiful Métis lady out east at Red River area they met. And they ended up getting married in Rocky Mountain House area, actually. And then they, they ended up up at Athabasca because Athabasca Landing, as it was called at that time, was a really, you know, and place to be for the fur trade. So. so that's who I am. My father was Ken Gullion and his grandmother was Adele Nipsing, who has connections to Lac-Saint-Anne and to the Cree families there, as well as Apparently she spoke Michif as well. And she actually, there's a story that as a little girl, she went out to a buffalo hunt. And she remembered riding in the squeaky carts for days, how they would go squeak, squeak, squeak <laughs> out into the prairies. I never met her. She died the year I was born. So, And my mother was a Ukrainian settler. Her family came over with the promise of, land to be able to grow grow food and everything for the huge numbers of people who are coming over to canada at that time and their family was in athabasca as well so that's how my parents met
0: that's very cool it's neat to hear about all the different family trees that we all have and, and even the interconnectedness of it all
1: yeah that's true Amazing. and if you if you get people to start talking about the last names in their genealogy then you can see your cousins and your you know, there's like groups that are completely related, you know, like the Sound families are related to us. So Michelle Sound, who's also another contemporary artist right now, her family is related to mine. And so we have Brabant, Nipsing, Brazo, and Distantly Fraser, those sorts of names in our ancestry, our Métis ancestry.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. So vocationally, how long have you been practicing as a, an artist, a creator?
1: Well, probably forever. I did have a short period of time right out of high school where I was saving up to go to art school. And I was working at an insurance company selling car insurance. And I did that for about four years. And um, that's actually where I met my husband. <laughs> so I did that. And then I went to art school in Edmonton. I went to Grant McEwen University there in Edmonton. And they had a beautiful campus at Jasper Place. It was one of the neatest designed places ever. It's still there, actually. And then took a break to earn some more money because I wanted to finish my degree. I was going to go out to Nova Scotia, to the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, which was really a, a happening. That was the place to go back then. And instead, I met my husband and kind of took a little bit of a detour (laughs) for a couple of years and then ended up, we ended up in the lower mainland actually. And I went back to school there at Capilano University and I took, well, at that time you couldn't have degree programs. So they were, because they were a college, they were splitting it into, it was four years, but you basically, you took the first year as a sort of like a night classes. And the second year was a foundation. And then you took a two-year certificate to make up your degree because we weren't really allowed to have degrees in graphic design at that time. So that's what I did. Yeah.
0: That is amazing. And during all this, tell me about your knowing you were Métis. When when did you know or when did you find out?
1: I knew that I had Indigenous family as as a little girl, but my dad was trying to protect us. And so we weren't really allowed to talk about it. And It was to the point where, and even if my mom braided my hair in braids, my dad would be like, no, take the braids out, take them out. So I really wasn't able to explore that until, you know, out of respect for him, I waited until he passed away. And he was very young, unfortunately. He was only 51 when he passed away. So I really got connected to the Métis side of things in my 30s. His mom had told me many times, oh, your family, they're so interesting. You need to go to the library and look into the history books because they're there, you know. And I always thought it was fanciful stories. But in my 30s, I went and had a look, And sure enough, the Gullions were in the history books. We actually owned land close to where the McDonald Hotel is in Edmonton on the riverbank. And they there was a whole group of Hudson's Bay Company men who had been given land along that area. And they they did it just very much like the Red River area where everybody had a strip that went down and connected to the river. And so, you know, in my 30s, I was able to look into that and sort of find out. And then and then I was living in Tumblr Ridge at the time of all places, Tumblr Ridge. There was like only 3,500 people living there. My husband worked at one of the mines there. And this little poster went up that said, oh, Métis, we're, we're looking to start a Métis group here in in uh, Tumblr Ridge. And a bunch of people were coming in from Dawson Creek and Chetwin. And I thought, oh, I got to go, go to that meeting, you know, see what it's about. And I remember walking in and I was kind of looking around at all these faces that looked like mine. You know, I I was used to not fitting in, and we never really fit in with the Cree kids, my brother and I, when we were little, and we never really fit in with the white kids either. Very fully aware that you were kind of somewhere in the middle. (laughs) So I walked in and saw these people that looked like me, and I said, "I don't know if I'm in the right place." and A a dear friend of mine who's passed away now, uh, Alan Tremaine, he was actually a residential school survivor. And he looked at me and he goes, oh no, you're in the right place. Have a seat. (laughs) And that was just the most beautiful experience I had ever had. You know, I felt like I'd met a whole bunch of family and gosh, I really felt like I belonged. And that's kind of how we got started. And I ended up becoming the president of the newly formed Metis Association in Tumblr Ridge. There was only eight of us.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. That is really cool. And for you, what does it mean to be Metis? How would you mm-hmm. describe that? Being Metis is super special.
1: Because we bridge between multiple cultures and most of the Metis people I've met can do the same thing that I do is that you can you can walk in your Metis way and fully Fully be immersed in that, but you can also move into the settler side when you need to and talk to people from there. And so you kind of provide this beautiful bridge, which is so important right now between, you know, non-Indigenous and Indigenous cultures. There's so many people now, you know, looking at reconciliation and really wanting to know as allies, you know, what can we do? What can we do to help? What can we do to, you know, support you? And so I think as a Métis person, we are uniquely situated to be able to walk in and understand both sides. And actually, if you look, I do a lot of reading into history. I just recently read The Women of Red River. It's an old book. Love it. It's all sort of narrative, you know, based on what these ladies' experiences were. But if you look into that, especially the Brabant family, which is, a, you know, some of my ancestors, they were very into wakotuin That was a huge practice for them, which is community-based love and reciprocality, right? That it was hugely important for them. And so they spent a lot of time with their Cree ancestors as well with their Métis family and friends. And, and I think we are situated to still do that now.
0: That's incredible. And for you, being a creator, being an artist, Mm. what does creating mean to you?
1: Well, it's funny. I've only just realized, you know, at the tender age of almost 60, (laughs) what this is meant for me. And really, it's actually my first language. And so visual, visual and creating and making and holding is my first language and not actually speaking. I think in images, everything I do, all the problem solving, everything's in images. And as a little girl, you know, my mom got me crayons. For as long as I can remember, I'd have something and I'd be writing and scribbling. And, and I like to record family events, which were really important to me, like birthday parties. And, you know, things where the family would come together and be super happy. And I used up so much paper. You know, and back in the 60s, we didn't have a lot of money or paper. And so my mom would give me the pantyhose cardboard out of her pantyhose packages to draw. And it was great. Right. And then the backs of calendars that they were done using or any piece of paper like that. And I'd draw on everything. And so I did actually go for a little period of time without doing anything creative. I I just, I don't know, I wanted to see what that would be like. And it was terrible. <laughs> I was so frustrated and unhappy, and I just realized that that is a part of how I think and communicate, so I can't really separate myself from it anymore, yeah.
0: Wow, and being Métis, how does it come across in your artwork, for those that maybe haven't seen your artwork yet and and seen it, how would you describe Mm -hmm. it?
1: Well, early on, when I first was exploring what it meant to be a Métis person and what Effect that could have on my art because before that, I was simply like a lot of early practicing artists. When you're practicing and getting better at what you do, you emulate artists that you admire. So, a lot of my early work was just work that emulated nature, so as realistic as I could possibly get. Sometimes it emulated artists that I really loved. But as I got good at that, I wanted to start and find my own voice. And so one of the early things that I did was work on investigating what pop culture, Indian and cowboy culture, how it had influenced my brother and I since we didn't have direct connection to an indigenous community. I wanted to see if the old cowboy movies and Indian movies and those stereotypes had actually affected how I thought of myself as a Métis person. So I researched comic books and old movies and lunchboxes and just everything I could that had to do with, you know, depicting Indian, as they were calling us back then, Indian people, And, you know, were there stereotypes and how did that affect me? So I ended Remember up with... Remember that
0: pain medicine, that little box with the... That was where you'd often see it in advertising. Yeah. I don't what the pain medicine was called, but the guy with the headdress and...
1: Yes, yeah. exactly. Or tobacco, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> little tobacco tins. And also, interestingly, on liquor bottles... I actually did this piece. It was a video piece where I took this liquor bottle. It was shaped, it was all painted brown and it was shaped like an Indian chief. And it held fire water, as they were calling it. It just gets really terrible here, but Mm. (laughs) it was holding fire water. And so I did this piece where it was just my hands opening the decanter, which was the guy's head with his headdress. He just popped his head off. And then I, (laughs) I poured the amber liquid into my beautiful crystal glass. And then you can hear me drinking it in the background and then just slamming that down, you know and i just wanted to see what would it feel like as an indigenous person to use something like that that was so stereotypical and was targeted as almost like a joke against indigenous people So I started working on those sorts of things that were meant to be jokes or meant to be heroic, like some of the comic books where the heroes were just outrageous. They were as outrageously gifted as Marvel comic heroes that we see now in in popular movies. And here were these, you know, Native people running around, wrestling down giant grizzly bears and climbing up the side of a cliff on their horse, and so I redid and recreated these comic book covers. I painted them with my dad and my brother and I as the heroes. <laughs> we had grown it, up.
0: Do, do those still exist somewhere? Oh, Are they yeah, somewhere we could yeah. find?
1: Yeah, you can see them wow. on my website. I'm I'm creating a new website where it'll be easier to find that stuff. It's kind of hidden yeah. on my website right now. But so my dad used to tell these fantastical stories about how he could wrestle the antlers off a moose and all this. So I turned those into the comic book covers, you know. Wow.
0: That is incredible. Yeah, so that's how
1: I started kind of like poking fun back at the people Mm -hmm. who had sort of poked fun at us. And right now, the work that I'm doing, which we've kind of been talking about, is something called counter mapping. So I'm taking vintage maps that historically have absolutely no voice, no indigenous voice represented, and doing a grassroots beadwork and mark making on those maps to demonstrate, you know, the fact that Indigenous people were here during that time and that we have a completely different view of the land, what it how it should be looked after and how it should be divided and ownership and all of that. So that's kind of what I'm doing now. And I'm creating my own Metis florals. So lots of indigenous Metis people have florals that have been passed down in their families and I don't. So I created my own starting now. And I've been putting those designs onto the maps and onto things like old encyclopedia pages that talk about Indigenous people as a dying race. And so I redact all of that. I kind of beat over it or cross it out, you know, because it's it's a myth. It's not true at all. So that's kind of what I'm doing right now. I even did some half-breed, they as they were called, they're like half-breed <laughs> novel covers where they would They would cast the half-breed man as like the super sexy, desirable James Bond of the Indigenous people, right? He was like, every woman wanted him and every man wanted him dead, you know? (laughs) So I'm putting my beadwork over top of that because the poor guy, he needs rescuing, you know? He's on the cover there, the way they paint him and everything. So I'm just adding, you know, what he truly deserved, which was beautiful Métis beadwork on his Garments or whatever, you know.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. That's incredible. So, uh, being an artist, being a professional artist, mm. and and one who, if you, uh, we were just talking before the show, I wanted to buy some pieces, and you're, you're a <laughs> sold out artist, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, hard to get on request. Tell me about doors that have opened, and and mm. maybe opportunities you've had or recognition you've gotten. And I know this is, you know, sometimes it's hard to brag about yourself, but oh gosh, I'm, I'm asking if you could, <laughs> if you could take a moment. <laughs>
1: It's funny because, as you know, you know, I was teaching an entrepreneur class, and one of the things that we all struggle with as, as Indigenous artists is the fact that, especially from our any of us that have Cree ancestors, we were taught that we don't speak for ourselves and that someone else speaks for us, right? It's not that you don't have accomplishments. It's that someone of note speaks for you about those accomplishments. And even if you're standing next to them, you know, you stand next to them and your whoever, your auntie, your uncle, or whatever talks about you and what you've done in the community. So it's been really hard. And I think a lot of us as Indigenous artists, that's where we kind of have our biggest struggle is in today's world, we're expected to talk about ourselves, you know, oh, look at me, look at what I do. And, a, you know, it can be really hard. But I think one of the biggest moments for me, I was right in the middle of doing my master's degree in art education, and I was working full-time teaching in academia, and I had two little kids and my husband and everything, but I just decided that I wanted to get involved in some of the artwork for the Olympics in 2010, and I put in an application for public art, and it wasn't accepted, but they were so impressed with it. They passed it on to Coca-Cola, who was having Indigenous artists do it reimagining of this eight foot Coke bottle that was made out of fiberglass, right? And they were very excited to have me on board. So I ended up, you know, while I was doing all this other stuff, I was in my studio with this giant Coke bottle on its side, painting it. and, And I put ravens flying all around in there. And I had my indigenous, my own floral work and lots of bubbles. My brother likes to say it's Barbie-like. You know, I had Barbie bubbles and everything flying around with these incredible ravens. And then I told my husband, we need to make it into a lamp. So just like putting a, you know, like a ship in a bottle, we cut a little hole in the top and then we had these long tools and everything and we had to insert lights and wiring and everything and have it like a pole lamp so that it would light up the entire Coke bottle from the bottom to the top. And then we put a solar panel on top so that it would recharge so that there wasn't some cord like a toaster, you know, coming out the side and into the wall. So it completely lit up by itself. And it was so exciting to be at the unveiling. I was there with Calvin Hunt and Corrine Hunt, who did the medals, you know, for 2010 Olympics. And so we were there and at the opening. And of course, I had no experience with anything like this, but the The cameras from all over the world, and they were stacked three and four high with just these little heads of these people operating the cameras, and they were all a bank of cameras in front of us, and we had a little X where we had to stand, you know, and they said to us, okay, we're going to introduce your work and everything, and then we're going to do a scrum, and I'm like, what's a scrum, you know? (laughs) But I found out all these people raced up to me with their microphones and they're gathering around going, oh, wow, we want to talk to you about your art. You know, what are your influences? And I was just looking at everybody. I was so overwhelmed. And I looked over at, uh, well, Gary Oker was there, too. And I looked over at Gary and and, and Calvin. And they were old pros. They were just totally charming the media. And I was standing there with my eyes all wide. So I had to kind of like, come on, Kim, get it together. So that was very exciting and, I guess, kind of my biggest experience until recently with the stamp design that I was able to do for the first ever Canada Post stamps on truth and reconciliation. And that was the next kind of thing since then.
0: It's amazing. How does it feel? And again, you know, pride, pressure, mm-hmm. whatever it looks like when, you know, I mean, use Canada Post as an example. They picked a you know, First Nations artist, and Inuit artist, and you... Métis artists representing, I'm just going to throw this out there, not to like mm-hmm. overwhelm me, but like you are representing Métis artists oh, yeah. for the nation on stamps. And then at the Olympic, what, what has it been like, like the, the different emotions you feel or the experiences you get from that?
1: Oh, it's, you know what, you bring up a really good point. It's heavy. It's very heavy. Like I, first of all, recognize what an amazing opportunity to be able to be in front of All these individuals and talk about our our culture, which was hidden for so long. We were on the road allowances. We were, you know, just sort of living on the edge, on the fringe of everything. And suddenly there you are in front of the cameras. And I spent a lot of time before, like Canada Post had done a beautiful documentary. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's a beautiful documentary and had all four of us artists there. And it was a whole day thing, you know. They came and set up in my house and that. And I was just meditating and thinking, you know, this is a huge responsibility. They're going to ask me a lot of questions about how I feel about uh, reconciliation, about my culture. And I really had to meditate and sort of stay in in the moment and be thinking about you know, the core values that are important to me and to the others of us in our culture. And those have to be forefront and not necessarily what you do as an artist visually, but the fact that your artwork reflects core values that are so very important to you and to families and to people that own your art. So I actually had to take a break during the filming of the documentary because I started crying And I couldn't get it together, you know. They were asking me really hard questions about the little children that didn't come home from residential school. And, of course, here in Tukimloops, this was the first place that was on the map with that story. And at the time, I lived very close to that location. It was so heavy. And we grieved so hard. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of grieving that goes on as well as sort of positivity and hope every single time I have to talk. Yeah. yeah,
0: And for you talking about projects and talking about projects, you mentioned one of the projects and I, I'm going to hold it up here. I know listeners can't <laughs> see it, but those that are watching the video can see this. This yeah. is the map that you would probably see maybe in your elementary school wall or maybe in an exactly. atlas if you own an atlas and, and you put beads on it. You, you sewed beads into a map, which again, yeah. amazing story about why. Tell me about maybe about another art piece that's maybe coming up or that you're working on or another piece that you're really proud of and want to tell us about.
1: Oh, for sure. I just want to point out that those maps that like the one that you have there that I'm mm. working with, those are in 1950s. They're actually, I bought the uh, Canadian Dent School atlases and some of those yeah. would have been in the residential schools. Those children would have had those maps in their hands, yeah. right? And wow. so I I bought the authentic ones and some of them still have the names of the students written in them that use them. Wow right? And then I pull the map of Canada out and I work with that, knowing how many hands have touched that and how many children have looked at that. There was recently research that was done into sort of whether or not you can find DNA attached to these old books that people handle. And a lot of times, you know, people would lick their finger and then turn the page and you can actually find DNA information and extracted off of these old books. And how exciting! Like some of these people, some of these children aren't with us, but they're but they are because their DNA is on the pages, the very pages that I'm pulling out and doing bead work on. So for me, it's really exciting and important with all the things coming forward as well that I connect, the past, the present, and the future. It's gonna sound kind of like a, a weird sort of a spaghetti trail dodge, but I'm heading towards connecting Métis culture back to horse culture. We had such a huge horse culture back in the day. You know, horses and dogs did so much for us. and, And I've been learning about the buffalo runners and their horses and what different horses these guys had, you know, and how they decorated them and took off with these horses. I mean, as soon as they'd hear a gunshot, apparently they'd just take off running and they knew how to avoid falling buffalo. So here you are, you know, and this is my next project that we're talking about now, but they're running full speed on this amazing horse and they're not steering it. They're not holding on. They've got their gun up in their hands and they're, you know, shooting and trying to avoid each other. One of my favorite pieces of art in Canada from the past is a piece that Paul Kane did of the time when he got invited to go run buffalo with the half-breeds, as they were known then. And it's kind of funny, and I don't know if he meant it to be this way, but in the painting, he's on the ground all rumpled up and the horses are running over him because that's what happened. He took off on the horses with everybody hunting in that. And it's, you know, I mean, this is somebody who rode horses every day, but, you know, he couldn't stay on his horse and he ended up on the ground and people had to come rescue him. So there's this amazing painting that he's done in his collection of these half breed running after the Buffalo and someone coming to rescue him and he's all rumpled up on the ground. (laughs) So I really want to look into that and look into the connection to the horses and sort of what do those homemade saddles mean for the people that rode in them? You know, what about the decor that was on the bridles? I mean, one of the things that was a punishment if you didn't, you know, do what you were supposed to as part of uh, Buffalo Hunter Code, they would cut up your bridle. Mm. That was like one of the biggest punishments was to have your bridle cut up. And think about how much it took to make that bridle and, you know, how much it meant to those individuals. So I want to look into that.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Incredible. I want to ask about this. So uh, those that are listening who are Métis. A lot of those right across the country yeah. those in bc and those that are listening who aren't a metis maybe you kind of speak to those two audiences first of all why again it's not for your specific art it's for metis art in general why is it important for someone to who is metis to have metis art in their home and to support metis artists and maybe those who aren't metis why is it important to, to look into metis art and having that art in their home or yeah. office
1: yeah uh- Absolutely. Well, first, I want to point out the fact that Métis art was mostly worn on the body and on the horses and packed around every day. You know, being semi-nomadic and also being very, I don't know if you could say pragmatic, but but very aware of their own footprint on the land, they combined their art with useful and everyday objects, right? And even though right now I'm making Work that hangs on the wall. That work that hangs on the wall is super important to keep us grounded in our identities, to help remind us of our core values of community, of love, of kindness, of generosity. You know, we can look over and be inspired by that piece when we see it. It's the glue that connects us with my work. I see it too. It connects us to the past, part of our future to the present and to the future, you know, it keeps us connected. And also art is, and of course, science is now just catching up with what Indigenous knowledge has already known, but art is so good for your mental health. It's good for having that in your space to improve your mental health. We actually get a a hit of dopamine when we look at a piece that we really love, you know, and so the science is there behind that. And it's also good for us to be able to open up conversations about difficult topics, you know, things that are hard to talk about and bringing a sense of self-worth to the individuals, again, that are wearing whatever beautiful earrings or pieces or the, the stuff that they have, the items that they have in their offices and homes.
0: It's incredible. Kim, is there anything else you want to leave with uh, listeners and viewers today?
1: I would really like to see our communities and not just Metis community, every community out there get back to community practice. Mm. Start valuing the people and the creative people, the writers. The workers that are in your community next to you, don't look online or overseas or anywhere else because it's actually right there in your community. Look around and see who's in your community and see how you can connect with them and support them in whatever way. I think that's going to be super important going into sort of the financial situations and things that we see up and coming in
0: 2023. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Let me give a shout out to some of your favorite Métis artists that, that you follow or that you're a, you're a fan of.
1: Rick Rivet. I love his work. His painting is just absolutely amazing. And some of my peers, of course, Michelle Sound with her auntie drums that she makes aunties old jackets and things on the drums. And my friend Lynette LaFontaine and their earrings that they create that are absolutely Amazing. Hello. And Carly Nabes as well, who does, not only does Carly do amazing watercolors with beadwork on them, Carly is very active in the arts administration and making sure that all you Métis artists out there get opportunities to show your work and to get professional development. So a shout out to Carly as well.
0: It's amazing. Thank you. Kim, thank you for being here today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It was so much fun.
0: This was the Métis Speaker Series Kim Stewart will put a link to her website in the video link and on the podcast link so you can check out more of her art if it's available, if it's not already sold out. Maybe you can get on the wait list. Maybe you can get on the email list and maybe potentially have your own piece of print or original creation in your home or
1: office. I look forward to meeting you.
0: Thank you, Kim. This has been the Métis Speaker Series Podcast. I'm Darian Kovacs. Thanks to Métis Nation BC for making this possible with funding provided by the Civil Forfeiture Office's Indigenous Healing Stream. You can listen to all of our episodes, learn more about the podcast, and sign up to the Métis Nation of BC newsletter to stay up to date on Métis news at metispodcastseries.ca. You can find out more about the music we're playing by Love Life by visiting SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Official. L-U-V-L-Y-F Official and link in the show notes for your convenience. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast listening device. See you again soon. Mina Kawapa mitten Thank you, Marcy, for listening.